Welcome to Let's Face the Facts, the rewatch podcast for the classic sitcom, The Facts of Life. Join us each week as we synopsize, analyze, criticize, and ultimately idolize the show. And now, here's your host of Let's Face the Facts, the wonderful David Almeida! Thank you, Matthew Arter. Welcome back. Another show, another week. Thank you for downloading and pressing play. This week, Matthew and I are joined by actor, improviser, stuntman, and swordmaster Ryan Gelodi. We all sat down to discuss Season 7, Episode 7, Duwa, and the original air date was November 2nd of 1985. We all have a lot to say about this episode, so let's jump right on in. Let's face the facts with Ryan Gelodi. Welcome to the show, Ryan Gelodi. Hello. Thank you for having me. Ryan, meet Matthew. Matthew, meet Ryan. You two Hello. apparently don't know each other. Even though we worked near each other uh, on many occasions, apparently. It's so nice having you. It's nice being had. <laughs> and uh, Ryan is joining us by Zoom, but he is at Sleuth's Mystery Dinner Theater. I can see the green room behind him. He brought his professional equipment with him, as well as his microphone and headphones. And uh, we are here getting to experience all the magic that is sleuths from the comfort of our own homes, Matthew. Oh, thank God. Beautiful part about the uh, the sleuth screen room, uh, for those of you who don't know, is that at this time of day, they haven't turned the AC on in here yet. That's right. Oh, yeah. Moist. Yeah. (laughs) so ryan before we even get started talking about the show and all the the nuts and bolts of the episode uh i always like to ask my guest did you have any relationship with the facts of life and the show did you watch it in its first run i did i watched it uh in my ute um and (laughs) your ute i watched it in my ute and i remember the show uh from that era but i i didn't watch it enough to be like Oh, that's my favorite character, or or uh, I. It was only as an adult that somebody said, "Oh yeah, George Clooney was on that show too." And I, I don't remember George Clooney being on that show. But when I watched it as a as a as a child, I I, I didn't know any actors' names, so why would I know George Clooney at the time? Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. And uh, yeah, kind of had a thing for Joe. And uh, watching this is. episode, I was like, "Yeah, of course, I still do." There it is. <laughs> I- I will never understand why all the straight men on this like <laughs> whack off to Joe. I don't. <laughs> I, oh, let, uh. Yep. It's, no, it comes up over and over, Ryan, that straight guys are into. Well, at the same is time, she the, uh, is she the Marianne to the Blair's ginger? Yeah. Is that what it is? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But actually, if you know JCP, Jennifer Krista Palmer, who is Ryan's wife, JCP is a force of nature, really. She is an insanely strong-willed, opinionated, confident, like there are some overlap qualities there where of all the straight men, it surprises me the least, Ryan, you would say (laughs) you were attracted to Joe. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. She was on the show a few weeks ago and my tens of listeners are all nodding in agreement. Like, yeah. (laughs) So you ready to talk about this piece of shit? (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, I could not have said it any better because as I watched this and I watched it twice to make my notes, I literally thought, I hate this. This is <laughs> the worst episode ever. Like of all the episodes I've said, I don't like, I didn't care for. This is so far worse than any of the worst. Um, but Ryan, what did you think overall coming into it kind of cold? Uh, coming into it cold, it seemed to fall right on the um, the scale of what I expected from a sitcom of that era. Um, the, the one thing that surprised me is that there's only two sets. Mm-hmm. There's yep. only two sets. And I was like, oh, were they scraping for money that season? What was going on? That seemed uh, That seemed like an odd choice that they only had the one location change and only two sets and okay. That's all we're doing. Well, the store over our heads is a new set. So we need okay. to use it and Got make it. sure it's paid for. Right. And uh, so because of that, it could be there kind of scrimping, but I think it's always about economy, always about, Hey, if we don't have to haul out the, the damn flats for the girl's bedroom, if we don't have to, sure. let's, yeah. let's write it so that we don't. Uh, yeah. But I did make a note of that, too. And like you said, it feels fitting for a sitcom of the era. I think this could be a part of a term paper uh, or a dissertation on all of the worst qualities of the stereotypical <laughs> 80s sitcom. Yeah. But uh, so, Matthew, what did you dislike the most about it? Before we go specific, let's get into generalities. Well, let me say it is still one of my favorite episodes. <laughs> It's still one of the most memorable for me. And it's also like, it actually has lines that to this day, I still work into conversation. So, okay. Um, I, you know, it's just, it was a, it's like I said before, they're, they're turning into these 80s sitcoms where nothing in the history of the characters matter. It's just mm -hmm. this wacky situation we've got them into this week. And this mm -hmm. week they are a singing group that performs with Elda Barge like you do yeah yeah that old chestnut <laughs> <laughs> well we are about to discuss in depth season seven episode seven called do wah from original broadcast which had an original broadcast date of november 2nd of 1985 it was written by bob and howard benditson the magnificent writing team of the bodacious Benditson brothers. This is their second of two episodes that they have written for the facts of life. We were not that thrilled with the first one they wrote. And uh, this one I like even less. Howard would not go on to do much after this, but Bob of the Benditson brothers would go on to write and produce many home improvement episodes. Hmm. In addition to other uh, series as well, but that's kind of the thing that has the most uh, grip on his resume, as it were. And uh, as we uh, as we discuss this episode, do we do we need to give a spoiler war warning for anyone who's now? No, up? I just I don't know. I don't know. They've What's had the... forty years. It's okay. <laughs> uh, but uh, and then the episode was directed by John Boab, the in-house director. We don't need to talk about him, other than he did direct most of the facts of life's. And uh, so this is, you know, directorially, this is their guy. He's just part of the team. Um, so Ryan, 
now is the time in the show where I like to put our guest on the spot. Okay. And ask you if you would please provide a one to two sentence synopsis of the entire episode, uh, similar to what you might read in a TV guide. And I will leave it up to you if you want to include spoilers or not. Okay. Uh, um, uh, Scrappy Doo enters the uh, girls into a contest uh, against their will, and they uh, unwittingly get the chance to compete to sting with uh, DeBarge in the studio. Scrappy Doo. Scrappy Doo. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for actually making it a two sentence. The amount of times we have people, and I'm not here to disparage other guests, David. <laughs> First issue, David, is right off the bat. And I'm sorry, I'm going to bring it up. I'm going to bring it it up. Do it. Because it's something to keep in mind and continue to watch. Because it happened last week. And it's happened, I think, in every episode where they've been in that shop. Get your butt off the counter. (laughs) So unprofessional. It's so unprofessional. Imagine if a customer walked in. Your ass is on the counter, for Christ's sake. I, I get it. We're not worried about guests walking in. I get it. We're not worried about that. But and I get for direction. You want an interesting plateau. Yeah, they're but, trying to find levels, I guess. Yeah. I don't know yeah. what's that. I would agree. Get yeah. Your fucking ass off the fucking counter. <laughs> well, I mean, they are closed. You act like they're putting their bare beavers on the showcase. You might as well. In the next scene, George Clooney has his foot on the counter. His shoe. Okay. From, uh, yeah, uh, the shoe I'll draw a line. Shoe's there. too far. Yeah, that's oh, that's. But asshole is fine. And so, not a bear <laughs> asshole. Where's pants? I was Go impressed ahead. that George Clooney could get his foot up there, regardless. In those extremely tight pants he's in. Mm-hmm. That's that is that's flexible fabric. <laughs> David and Matthew are nodding and smiling. <laughs> <laughs> So we could get started dissecting this episode. Uh, As Ryan pointed out earlier, Act One takes place entirely in Over Our Heads, the store that they all are uh, multiple owners in, business partners. And uh, though there's many, many scenes in Act One that take place in the store. And uh, then Act Two takes place at the recording studio. So we begin with sort of two loose end storylines that don't really add up to anything, but we've got on one hand, the store has a new computer and Tootie took some sort of a class to learn it. So Tootie is trying to teach the girls how to use the computer, but is doing it like a condescending bitch. (laughs) And, uh, or I should say maybe with a romper room type of a sensibility of assuming the others are idiots. Uh, periodically throughout this, Mrs. Garrett is running in completely stressed out because she has three midterm papers due. Now, the good thing about this, Ryan, is this does track that Mrs. Garrett did start to go back to school last season, and they have kept this going through, that Mrs. Garrett is also pursuing her degree. Degree in what? We're not quite sure. Degree in why? Nobody has a fucking clue. But it does require her to study Russian literature. Dostoevsky. And 
One of the best jokes in the show, I think, is she's going through all the names and books and things that are just bouncing around in her brain. And she's saying Dostoevsky, Anna Karenina, Ilyanovich, Arkadovich, Avilovich, Ivanovich. I can't tell which is which. But Solid a joke. Chunk. Yep. Solid joke. That's good. That works for me. Uh, so then they have to start counting the inventory to put it into the computer. This was such a mid eighties thing. I remember my dad's business, com the, the computerizing, like we used to handwrite invoices and sit with an electronic calculator and write down the subtotal, do the tax and all that. And it was a big deal. It's like, there's a computer that will do this for us. But, <laughs> but the also setup. the same mental uh, uh, placement, I guess, of, Everyone in the 80s when computers came on, how did we ever get by without computers? <laughs> fuck off, Joe. Yeah, so she's being just like, and I'm sorry, I'm not feeling well, so I'm a little bit cranky. But like, it just, and, and Tootie is being like every fucking computer expert you've ever met. How many gigs do you need? I don't know what a gig is. Ugh. Fuck off, Tootie, all right? <laughs> and, and my code is two for Tootie. <laughs> Again, you've got these vaudevillian writers that have never seen a computer before writing mm. about a computer. And like later on, how, why didn't this work? You didn't ground yourself. I was in school when keyboarding was a class and we were learning about computers and Oregon Trail and all that shit. The word static electricity never came up. No. Nope. It's just something ridiculous that old people writing this didn't know about computers. And <laughs> what'll be funny is if it's just static. What? Talk to somebody about a computer <laughs> before you go write a fucking cop. There was plenty of comedy back then for computers, you know? Mm -hmm. But it's again, part of that generation that like I am, where if you press the wrong button, you're starting World War III. Thank you, <laughs> war games. So, <laughs> uh, well, when they send them off to start counting and doing the inventory, uh, Joe and Blair are paired up. And Joe says, in classic sitcom, we just need a joke, even though it doesn't even apply. Joe says, I don't want to work with her. She spits when she counts. Hey. And that got a huge laugh, by the way. Huge. Right. There's a there's a couple of points where the show gets huge laughs. Uh, to something that's just not funny and i'm wondering if uh, yeah i i actually don't know is the, is the show all canned laughter or is it actual studio audience or is it a mix of both my theory is they had one hell of a warm-up host all right because there are many shows where there are the laughs are a little bit too loud a little bit too hard but consistently so and mm. there are others where you get nothing you're like, OK, if this were canned laughter, they'd have opened the can here. Right, right. <laughs> so um, I, I, I think, Ryan, it's a mixture of both because yeah. there are some of those. Some of the, the laughs are just so like perfectly like ah, mm -hmm. like they're just so perfectly timed and stopped. And it just it can't it can't be it can't be real. I'm sorry. Right. Yeah. But I, I think I have to let go of that too. my my perception that it's all live that they probably do sweeten it. This was uh, yeah. the time that was starting to happen. But in response to Joe saying that Blair spits when she counts, yeah. Blair says, only when I wear my retainer. Okay. We've never, ever heard or seen or known Blair to wear a retainer. 
If she did have braces, it would predate this show because she's never had braces from the time that she was 16, 15, actually 15, if you take the original pilot from different strokes. Maybe she had braces then, but you wouldn't still be wearing a retainer at 21. Right. Uh, 10 years plus after you had braces. After your orthodontia. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just, I, nope, and- I'm... You're a millionaire, Blair. Millionaires don't wear braces. They go in and one day get the teeth fixed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tom Cruise didn't wake up with those teeth, and we never saw a time when those braces were on, did we? <laughs> so there is a reference to counting the Snoopy merchandise and the Gumby merchandise. Yeah, because George works there now, apparently. Yeah, apparently. I was thinking that too. I'm like, George works at his dad's hardware store across the street. Now, Andy does work there. Andy is an employee because it's totally okay to employ a 12 year old. Right, right. Well, I mean, we'll get to this later. But yeah, George's presence through the whole thing is weird. Uh, Like, yeah, he's not an employee, but he's there doing stuff. And then he shows up later in weird places. Yeah. Why he's at the recording studio is (laughs) insanely puzzling. Thank you for not wanting to spoil it, but you can totally, totally do that, Ryan. Totally. I didn't want to jump ahead. I didn't want to jump ahead. Yeah. That last, Uh, the the music video of them singing with DeBarge and George is just randomly in the middle of it. Walking around in the back, (laughs) walking around in the back. I love that. (laughs) But the thing is, like, you see him back there and it's like, he doesn't even know why he's there. Right. You can tell as an actor, he's like, uh... did you want me here today for filming? I can, I could go. Yeah, I wasn't on the call sheet, but I, I showed up. And I could just put on the. I don't have to. There's, you know, it's just jeans and a lumberjack shirt. And uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so in comes uh, horny little Andy. And I, th- I think we need to start calling him uh, or, or, or yeah, we need to start calling him horny little Andy because mm-hmm. it was pointed out by it was was it Carl who started it? Matthew? I think Troubles. so. And George isn't exactly uh, stifling his horniness. George is encouraging it and fairly horny himself. Uh, yeah, but I think appropriately so. I think George's George's level of horniness and uh, addressing it is a little more on par with a 24-year-old stallion like right. he is compared <laughs> to a 12-year-old boy, a prepubescent boy, still doesn't, not even voice starting to change. I mean, makes a point to say he's not yet a teen. Yeah, meaning he's not 13 yet is what right. he's talking about. Mm-hmm. But it's like, no, he is still every inch a child as far as how he looks, how he sounds. Mm-hmm. There is no middle ground of, well, he's starting to get to that age where they're noticing girl. No, no, he should be walking around with his red wagon and have a propeller beanie on his head. He's still a fucking <laughs> child. I'm surprised you didn't write for this this show, David, putting a 12-year-old with a red wagon and a beanie cap <laughs> on in 1985. <laughs> Jesus Christ. That's what kids David. did in 1985. That is uh, totally what they did. Yeah. I'd have him at the arcade hanging out and not here with the girls. But okay, so he comes in. uh, First things right out of his mouth is he's got a magazine called Teen Scene. And the girls are like, what do you got that for? What's all that about? And he says, hey, it helps me find out how teen girls think. Gives me an edge. An edge, like he's in some sort of competition for uh, available ladies. I don't know. 
Yeah, gives him an edge to be able to fuck as many chicks as he right. wants to. I yes. think. Um, so he mentions that there is this contest where El DeBarge, you guys familiar with him? Thank God. Joe says, uh, yeah, the rhythm of the night. Yeah. Who doesn't know him? But let's state it just in case in, in the next millennium, <laughs> three actors are watching who may not know who the fuck he is. <laughs> But um, there's a contest happening where the winner of the contest gets to sing with him and record on one of his albums. Now, Andy isn't eligible because he's a boy. They're looking for female singers. And um, there's a little bit cut from syndication here, Ryan. They usually chop out three minutes before we get the version that you watched on Daily Motion. Oh, all right. But on the DVDs, there's a little extra bit cut from syndication where Andy does say, look, I'll handle the paperwork for you guys. Just, you know, if you want to give me some ideas as to why you would want to sing with him in a hundred words or less. And the response is, we don't. That's two words, <laughs> which is kind of funny. But then. Good joke. Yeah, that is a good joke. But then uh, horny child. Um, I have five horny child moments in this episode. That's why we're, we're doing this. So this is horny child number two. He says, you guys are naturals the way you sing in the car, in the shower. And Blair says, yeah. And Andy, we've asked you not to hang around outside the bathroom door. (laughs) (laughs) So that's in the bit that was cut from the syndication. Correct. That's that's new information to you guys. Oh, my God. Oh, I was I was Uh, already uncomfortable with the. The moment that is coming up that you're about to mention, the the re- multiple requests for moaning. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that was. That's, oof, yeah, that is one of the moments, though. It is there. Yeah. Um. So uh, basically, they're like, why do you want to even do what's in it for you sort of a deal? And he says, because maybe if you get to sing with him, he and I might meet and we could become friends and I get to hang out with him and all that. And also cut from syndication. Matthew will be thrilled with this. Tootie says, you know, Andy, it may not be all it's cracked up to be. I had a huge crush on Jermaine Jackson. And when I met him, it wasn't all that. Nowadays, he never calls. He never writes. He never puts a lyric in a song about me. Thank you for securing that I am not insane because I remembered that. See, I, I remembered that from seeing it originally Mm -hmm. i don't know why but like i said one of my favorite episodes so i remembered that and i was like where the fuck was the mention of because i remembered her mentioning jermaine jackson in this and and i didn't hear it so thank Mm -hmm. you for for um making sure that i'm not insane so the implication is that she dated jermaine jackson oh no no, ryan in season three or four david which one was it season three episode 15 in season three, we find out out of nowhere, <laughs> I think maybe because Facts of Life couldn't get Tito, um, <laughs> they fucking make Tootie the president of the Eastland Girls um, Jermaine Jackson fan club. And she has a, a Shirley MacLaine style breakdown where Mrs. Garrett won't let her go to the concert. And then she finally lets her go. And then Tootie breaks into Jermaine Jackson's dressing room. And gets arrested, um, gets no. tased. How uh, does that go? Wrestled. She yeah. gets wrestled a little bit, but Jermaine walks in and he says, let her go. And they <laughs> let her go and they have a conversation. And then she's like left to feel like mm, that wasn't all it was cracked up to be. 
Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ne- never meet your heroes. So yeah. good for the Bendelbaum brothers for like, <laughs> you know, doing a little bit of homework. They, they did some research. They, they did. And I do have to give them their props for this, for how much I hate, hate this episode. So the next scene, we go into the next scene. It's a different day. We have a lot of costume changes. Well, I think we have what? One, two, three. We have four different scenes requiring four complete different sets of costumes just in the first act to show the passage of time. Does George and- ever change his outfit? I feel like he has the same thing on for the whole episode. Probably. Okay. I, my question is, they show the passing of time by clothes and he comes in, Andy comes in and goes, look, I got a letter for, in response to the entry that I sent in. But Mrs. Garrett's still doing midterms. Mm. How, <laughs> how, how quick was the turnaround for this fucking contest? Or how tough are those midterms? And how tough are those <laughs> midterms? And why is Mrs. Garrett the only one with midterms? Aren't Joe and and Blair in college as well. Last I knew, and they're full time, not part time like Mrs. G, but just checking. They get time to sit their asses on the counter and piss you off. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Andy comes in in this. This is like basically scene two. Andy comes in. Uh, Blair is learning the computer and she's doing well with it. And uh, someone says something like, oh, I wouldn't have expected that. And she says, yeah, me neither. The only other machine that I'm this good with is the automatic teller. And they cut out from syndication. They cut out Joe going, that's not the only machine. Oh, did they? Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, All right. Yeah. That's, that's the one under her bed in the shoebox, mm. I think. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but yeah, the automatic teller, that's what they call them for, for the- Because uh, she's uh, rich. Yeah, for the elderly impaired of our listeners, <laughs> that is what ATMs were. Before we had, we, we called them the automatic teller machines. ATM hadn't become the sort of catch-all thing that everybody used. It was still just at the dawn of having, like I got my first ATM card before I went to college in the fall of 86. So yeah, this is the dawn of, of cash starting to slowly leave our lives. The uh, the area that I grew up in, there was like a brand name for ATMs. Uh, it was the Money Access Center. So I grew up calling them Mac machines. Oh. Um, and so when people started calling them ATMs, I was like, I don't, what's an ATM? Uh, yeah. where's, the, where's the Mac machine? Uh, so <laughs> that's interesting. I had no yeah. idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, so with... Um, I lost my place. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, so after they cheer Mrs. Garrett on, she comes out still a fucking stress cadet and they do literally cheer her Edna, Edna and send her out. It's just like, girl, you know, you're on your way out of the show. You don't even want to be here. So get off, get off your Canadian cross and go. Yeah. (laughs) So then Andy shows up and the news of the day is we made the semifinals. And they're like, what are you talking about? How could we be in the semifinals for a contest we didn't enter? And he's like, well, you kind of entered it. I wrote that essay that you wouldn't give me myself. And I wrote it in silver lipstick on one of his album covers. And most of it was telling DeBarge how much you love El DeBarge. And, and so they're like, and, and. Had it delivered? Oh, that's right. Shit. Had it hand delivered by an exotic dancer. 
Shit, that's a sixth horny child reference. Yeah. I only had five. I forgot that one. How does Andy know how to get in touch with an exotic dancer to arrange such a thing? Mm. <laughs> Thank you for catching that. I totally, <laughs> I totally missed it. That would have been totally would have been one of them. So that would have that's technically horny child three. Yeah. I've got a um this is a movie like you know, you heard about the problem child movies. This is the new franchise we're starting up. Uh, with uh, for the Peacock Network, Horny Child Three. Um, oh my God! Yeah, just so disturbing the idea that he was probably going to a street corner, right? With with some cash in his hand and him just going, uh, "Hey, would you deliver this over there?" <laughs> Anyhow, it made an impact, and they are now among one hundred other semifinalists. And so <laughs> Natalie's like, "We could win." Like, <laughs> I guess that's not terrible. And so he says, but the next thing you got to do is you got to make a demo tape. And through conversation, Tootie, Natalie and Blair kind of are like, well, we could. Yeah, why not? It's a fuck. It just this has happened. Let's do it. Of we're course, not do, we're not doing midterms. There's no customers in the store. What else? Mm-hmm. We yeah. Got to do? yeah, we've we've mastered the computer already. <laughs> yes. And Joe was the one that's like, uh, n- no, I'm, I think Joe's one that said, I'm a businesswoman and I'm running my business. And uh, but somehow they sway her. So the next scene, uh, this is I guess this might be later the same day. I'm not sure if this is another whole full costume change, but uh, they're sitting around the store going through sheet music because they're singers. Now, I was going to say, have they ever at any point in previously in the show performed, sang, established that they do this sort of thing? Tootie, oh. I would give, might have a book of Broadway songs. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. she's the actress. She's but, an actress, yeah. And I did look, and Nat- what Natalie is holding up is like a Billboard magazine. She's like looking <laughs> through like like song titles. She's just looking for okay. song titles oh, at this point that they okay. know, right. I think. But yeah, the implication is they're looking through sheet music and stuff and trying to find a song, yeah. I guess. Yes. The last time they performed... Ryan was at a Christmas pageant for a prison. And that well, was right. That's right. And Joe might have reams of sheet music because, as we know, she's a professional jazz musician. She's a jazz pianist. <laughs> wow. She's she's a what, Matthew? She's a jazz penis. Okay, there it is. (laughs) (laughs) But that's right. There was an episode, Ryan, where out of the blue, tough Joe girl, Joe, the tough girl from the Bronx. It's like over the summer, I walked back into the lounge. I couldn't believe what I saw. Joe is literally like, hey, Star Wars, if they should buy Wars. I'm exaggerating. But she's full on, thank you, how's your steak? It is. Wow. It is so beyond. Joe. Joe. Okay. This is clearly Joe's sheet music. So thank you, Matthew, for justifying that. Yeah. And (laughs) what song do they land on? My boyfriend's back. Because Uh, after Joe uh, uh, voraciously defends uh, Bruce Springsteen, Mm -hmm. apparently uh, Bruce Springsteen is some sort of saint in her eyes and no one can touch Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. If you're not from Jersey, you can't do Springsteen. Yeah. No. But yeah, it's my boy. You know, it's 1985. What's a great song that would demonstrate how hip we are, how appropriate our act would be to back up a modern day pop star? My boyfriend's back. My boyfriend's back. Mm -hmm. 
which then Blair sings. And we've heard Blair sing a few different times. And Blair's a fine singer, as is Lisa Welch. And for some reason, Blair sings like we have never heard Blair sing before. She's doing the the wife of the of the Culps from the SNL routine, doing this. <laughs> My boyfriend's back, and there's gonna be some trouble. And they're like, "What the fuck are you doing?" And uh, finally, they sort of coach her and say, "Get some more street into it. Get some more grit into it." And they all sort of join in a little bit of a sing along and clap along, and well, a musical sensation is born, gentlemen. It's such a great scene where Tootie is like, Tootie's like, we should just make up a song. We love Elder Barge. We like Teen Scene. We love this contest to sum it all up. We like Teen Scene, Elder Barge, and this contest too. <laughs> I, that's one of the things that I will work into conversation. I don't know how. Sometimes I do. But I just love An uh, Andy's response. He goes, we don't want to go typical. Well, excuse me, you 12-year-old fucking music producer. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to go typical. Shut the fuck up, Andy. Who are you, uh, Reuben Kincaid? Come go on. Back, go back to masturbating outside the shower door. <laughs> Jesus so, Christ. So my boyfriend's back came out in the, in the 60s, right? So... Uh, what, this episode is 88, Five. 85, 85. All right. So, yeah. Um, it, so if we made if we were making this episode today, it would be like doing a song from the late 90s. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah. Oops, I did it again. I don't know. Uh, yeah. And I'm sorry. The cultural shift between the 90s and today is nothing. Yeah. Compared right. to the difference in the music of the 60s and the music of the 80s. I mean, right. the, the cultural revolution that yeah. <laughs> our society, our country and our world went through. It, it, it's just it is such <laughs> an issue of relevancy here that is mm -hmm. beyond impossible to wrap your brain around. <laughs> but um, the, the the next scene is yet a different day. Um We've got a fun little bit going on here where Blair is at the computer and competently doing what she needs to do there. And George is sitting on the counter and has got his foot up on the other part of the counter. <sighs> and he's doing this little blocking his nose and kind of talking like the computer, like going, you know, entry approved. We have liftoff. And honestly, it's kind of cute. I liked it. It is one of those moments where the laughter that is accompanying it, I feel, is disproportionate to what's happening. And that was one of the moments that I was like, I think this is canned. I think it's canned. It, it very well could be. It yeah. very well could be these days. But Andy shows up with a letter and the letter tells them what, gentlemen? They made it. They did it. Somehow they, they made a... a, a, a somehow they made a demo tape with no filter as they refer to later. Uh-huh. Yeah. Where did, and when did they record this fucking tape? Do they do, right. did they stand in the bathroom or the kitchen <laughs> with a, a damn wall and sack tape recorder? Sleuth green room. Where did they go to record that sort of thing? <laughs> <laughs> but it was apparently good enough and they're singing so polished and professional. They are now finalists for so this in this so this whole episode there's only the two sets that they use mm -hmm. do we do we think that there's somewhere there was a draft of this where we saw the scene of them recording and they couldn't justify bringing in another set just for a recording scene 
of like, because where would you record in their in the world that they live in that wasn't an actual recording studio? Probably their bedroom. Yeah, I guess. Probably their bedroom. But honestly, what little we heard of their singing, I think they they quickly understood that was enough. Mm-hmm. That was all that we needed. All four of them do sing to some extent or at least carry a tune. But right. a, a professional quartet, they ain't. Right, right. So on the note of them reaching the finals is where act one ends with them cheering. And Mrs. Garrett's just finished her last term paper. And so they're cheering for that. And uh, we fade to commercial. Well, during the commercial break, Ryan, this is when uh, I like to get to know our guest a little bit better. All right. Okay. So if you will allow me to ask you to take us on a little Mick tour of your life and your career as a performer. So let's start with where were you born? I was born in Wilmington, Delaware. Ah, uh, for your your listeners who recognized Mac machines, that's where they're oh. from. That sort of corner of the Northeast is that the part of Delaware that's considered a suburb of DC? Uh, it's closer to Philly. Closer okay. to Philly. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. And is that where you grew up and you were reared and raised? Uh, mostly. I I was born in Wilmington, Delaware. Move, at the age of one, I moved to Wilmington, North Carolina. Oh. <laughs> uh, and then at the age of nine, moved back to Wilmington, Delaware. So, I was going to say, then you moved to Wilmington, Texas or something. I lived in Wilmington my whole, my whole childhood. Just two different states. There's got to be a Guinness World Records or something of a person who's <laughs> lived in the same town name in different states throughout right. their life. Right. That would be curious to find that out. Uh, so uh, where did you get the acting bug first? When did you start performing? I fell into uh, acting by accident uh, at uh, my local Renaissance festival. Oh, um, some friends of mine were going to go do that. And I had nothing to do that summer. So I went along with them uh, and I had a great time. And uh, that's where it started. And how old were you? Uh, I was, uh, was I 18? I was 18. So you were out of high school at that. Yeah, point. I was out of high school. I, I skipped, uh, I skipped theater in high school. I was a band guy in high school. Oh, um, what did you play? Uh, saxophone. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And where did you think your life was going at that point? I originally went to school for chemistry. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was going to be a chemist of some sort, either a chemist or a chemical engineer. My dad was a mechanical engineer. So, uh, uh-huh. so did at- you, did you do any college at all? Or did you just, I, I feel like at one point I've heard you say the term that you just ran off and joined the circus. Uh, I did do some college. I, I, I like to say that I'm so smart. I dropped out of college twice. Um, <laughs> I originally went to school for chemistry just for a year. Didn't that's when I ran away to join the circus. And then I later went back to school. Uh, I was going for a two-year degree in chemistry. And then after two years, I still had two years to go uh, because I'm an idiot and I took courses in the wrong order. Oh, uh, no. So I was like, I don't want to do this. And so then that's when I fully committed my life to this uh, insanity that I do now. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's great. So is... So you're you don't have any formal training then as a performer, not on the collegiate level. No, no. I mean, me neither. That's that's the thing. As Megan Maroney so beautifully said, there are so many different paths to performance. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so none none of the three of us 
studied theater at the collegiate level because Matthew, you didn't either. And yet here we are, professional actors on permanent furlough. Yeah. Suck it, world. Woo! <laughs> Did you get your unemployment check this week? Did it come? Okay, good. Cool. Good. Just checking. Just checking. So I didn't get mine yet. Um, <laughs> so then you are off touring the world doing Ren fairs after your miserable soul crushing failure at uh, college. And uh, <laughs> what gets you to Orlando? Uh, so I, I, for about six years at that point, about six years, I'd actually been making a living at Renaissance festivals, performing uh, 30 weeks a year, basically. Um, wow. Touring, uh, touring the country, got to see a lot of the country that way. That was great. Actually uh, worked two days a week and I'm somewhere different every four four to six weeks it was great mm-hmm. uh, so and it's a rent it's a renaissance fair so you don't really have to worry about showering or exactly. anything exactly <laughs> <laughs> but the the wife and i were always we were always the the cleanest snootiest of the uh of the other uh people in our uh our our peer group um mm-hmm. we we liked we liked clean showers and yeah so jcp and i met uh, performing at the Pennsylvania Renaissance Fair, which is where I started all of this. Um, the second year that I was performing there um, uh, as just a local unpaid volunteer for that particular festival, uh, Jennifer came in and uh, did the same uh, type of role at the festival. Um, Jennifer and I actually didn't get along at the time that first year we met. Um she then uh, she went away and did a different festival for a summer uh, for the, the year after that and then came back. And when she came back, that's when we connected again. And that's when we started dating. This is uh, I won't give years because that's a long time ago. Um, yeah, because you're 100. Yeah. <laughs> I, yes. Uh, it was sometime in the late Cretaceous, I think. Uh, <laughs> and I. Uh, then we were working a lot together uh, professionally because we were both part of the uh, the fight directing staff of that particular festival. So we were doing sword stuff. And mm-hmm. um, oh. a friend of ours uh, who is also a director type was directing another festival and said, can you two put together a sword fighting act for us? Um, this other festival, we said yes, and that took us to that festival, and then other festivals hired hired us. So we started doing more and more festivals. That's how we got on the road, basically. Um, and we were we were a couple at this point. Um, and so you basically had created this specialty act yes. that they would bring in, as opposed to being the sort of locals who would just drift in and yeah work for cheap. You were making the career. Yeah, exactly. It paid cool. significantly better, making significantly more money and seeing a lot of the country at the same time. Um, it was great. It was delightful. Uh, we married um, about five years into that. We got uh, officially married in the off season so our friends could show up for it. <laughs> and uh, and then not long after that, we started looking at Orlando because, um, as you probably know, there's a lot of people in Orlando who began their performing careers or at least spent part of their early performing careers at Renaissance festivals. Mm-hmm. So we knew a lot of people in town already. So we started looking at Orlando as like, hey, wouldn't it be nice to have like a a, a house that doesn't move when the wind blows um, <laughs> and, uh, and actually be able to be, you know, semi permanent in a location. So uh, and still do the kind of work that we wanted to do. So that's what brought us to Orlando. Um and that's what led to all of this. Uh, both of us were hired 
very, very quickly, like within like within a week of moving to Orlando, uh, Jennifer was at Universal Studios. Um, I was working for an, uh, a since vanished attraction called uh, the Hard Rock Vault. Like all Orlando actors can't just have one job. So those all snowballed into multiple other gigs. And, mm-hmm. uh, and Sluice Mystery Dinner Theater, where you yeah. and I first met. Well, thank you so much for making the time to be a part of this here today, as our schedules have gotten a lot more open over the last year and yeah. a half. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, uh, I'm okay. and huh? I'm okay. You're I'm okay. Right. Oh, <laughs> but you are splitting your time now between Orlando and Stone Mountain, Georgia, where we yeah. know uh, JCP is getting a lot of film and TV work, which yeah. is which is great. So you guys are making it work like like she all is of us. my retirement plan. <laughs> Her SAG pension is your SAG yes. pension. <laughs> Well, anyhow, I'm so happy to finally have you on the show. I've wanted to have you on for so long now. I'm so excited to be here. This is this is great. But Ryan, Jalodi. Yes. Yes. Enough about you. We have to get back to this show and figure out what is going to happen with this contest that the girls may or may not win to be an Elder Barge backup singing group. <laughs> So act two, we are at the recording studio. Um, Matthew, let me, can you set the scene of what everyone is there and what the fuck is happening and what everyone is doing? Because I don't know if I have the energy to go through the number of tropes that are bombarded at us. Oh, well, you're, you're probably going to have to because I was, I was just like, you know, we've all been in a recording studio that looks exactly like this, don't we? <laughs> don't we? With, with a gigantic waiting room with a desk yeah. and elevators. Yeah. yeah. My, my favorite with the recording studio was uh, when we first see that they're in a recording studio, you can hear music because there's somebody in the actual studio while they're out in the waiting room. Um, the door to the recording studio opens and the music changes just slightly to indicate that the door is open (laughs) and then the door closes and it goes back to what it was like oh that's a high quality sound studio you got there because that is something that happens when you're in a recording studio it's always somebody coming in and out yeah exactly (laughs) yeah well you're in the middle of a take oh totally yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah a true recording studio you would not hear anything oh I I really enjoyed the um, the soft drink machine that was behind them. That was one of my things that I noticed. But it's just a bunch of very eighties tastic. God bless Diana Eden, the costuming designer. Oh my god! For Amazing. making all of these, like you've got the Go Go's over here, you've got the the Supremes over here, and then um, the family, the King family singers over here. <laughs> Yes. And then and then the facts of life girls walk in and I thought Natalie looked great. I loved her little her little blue shiny outfit. Yeah, the shiny satin, a lot of shiny satin in the girls. And it, it yeah. did. They they look good. They really did. It. Um, yeah. Uh, the things that annoyed me the most about this were, number one, the presence of George. Why the fuck is he there? And he was there ahead of them. It's like he snuck in and was scoping out the talent. Yeah. Oh, was he not in the elevator with them when they first no. rolled up? No, I, I don't think so. I think okay. it, the girls are there. I can I can check that. 
but it's uh wait one second i, can I, I you might be right i just didn't catch that i didn't notice that uh i just checked george is on the elevator oh god as soon as the door opens up he's gone like you can tell directorially they were like okay as soon as the thing goes you're out of there because what we're dealing with right now dialogically speaking is <laughs> we have got the girls and andy holding a video camera backing into the room because he is determined to capture the entire experience on this 1985 portable camera, which uh, looks like he's got a car battery strapped around his shoulder and a big wire connected to a backpack with a lens on it. Yeah, I think now we have to assume, uh, since we've uh, established that it was cut out for the uh, the syndication, the uh, the bit about him hanging outside the shower, we now <gasps> know that he owns a video camera as well. <laughs> so just put two and two together. Do whatever headcanon you want. Um, video camera, shower. Well, okay. Horny kid. Wow. Horny. That's, a, that's an additional horny child moment. I think we're going to yep. call that horny child 4.5. 4.5. All right. 4A. Yeah. Except we missed four. We missed four because <sighs> when they were trying to find their song, they were going through the sheet music. Oh, uh, the moaning. This is, this is where he says, why don't you sing something sexy, you know, with a lot of moaning in it? <laughs> and the girls are like, um, no, that's not. What are you crazy? And then he goes, well, then could you just sing it for me? Yeah. <laughs> wow wow i like i like mckenzie and i'm glad that they gave him something to do with the camera but watching him chew the fucking scenery with that camera (laughs) the the ordeal he makes out of it um first of all that why is he holding it and shooting upward first first of all like a brownie camera or something like he's holding it down here shooting everybody so everybody's that's how you know he's an auteur but but the <laughs> fact that he spends the rest of the show overdoing the eye looking, I'm only looking through one eye, everybody. And the whole like, <laughs> oh, oh God, I've got to focus this. Jesus Christ, Martin Scorsese. <laughs> Just fucking stand there with your fucking camera for Christ's sake. <laughs> on when they're when he's in the recording studio filming them he's literally swaying back and forth with the camera like as they're film and i was oh god so i just yeah. watching him chew the fucking scenery with that prop they gave him it's like the prop suddenly is stealing focus andy and <laughs> no director told him to stop yeah but he does refer to the fact that he's recording it because it's gonna be huge like usa for africa the video behind the song USA for Africa <laughs> and, and thus firmly placing this in 1985. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh-huh. Uh, so then George comes back after being away for four lines of dialogue mm. and returns to them now, but he slips out so quickly and so unobtrusively that when he comes back, you all three of us were convinced that like, well, he was already there, right? Because yeah. <laughs> he says, well, I've scoped out all the competition. And it's like, wait, wh- what? We we just assume because because he says that it, it sounds like he's been working for uh, 30 minutes minimum. Yeah. Yeah. Insane. So he hasn't heard any of them sing. He no. hasn't. He's just basically mm-hmm. walked by and he goes, they're the only ones you have to worry about. 
the black girls from Detroit, but he doesn't say <laughs> black girls, but it is heavily implied. Yeah, because yes. there are no other black girls there. Am I right in the room? It's just those the three that that group from Detroit, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Motown. Mm-hmm. And the girls are a little intimidated by that, understandably, because, um, oh, they're not fucking singers. At which point Andy says, it's okay, guys, you can do this. You're special. You're unique. Wait, none of you has posed for Penthouse, have you? <laughs> do, do you know, Ryan, what specifically that's pointing to? Uh, uh, Vanessa Williams? Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was in September of 1983 that Vanessa Williams became the first African-American Miss America, mm-hmm. and she had to resign in July of 84. So less than a year before this, it's because she had taken some nakey nakey photos mm-hmm. and they got published in Penthouse. And, you know, God forbid, you can't be a celebrity and have shown your cooter to anybody. So it's like, Wow. Well, not at the beginning of your career anyway. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. You have to wait until your career is on the downfall, like um, Dana Plato. <laughs> <laughs> so again, a horny child. This is reference number five now, horny child five uh, of him talking about posing for penthouse, because, you know, that would clearly uh, be the, the scarlet A on your <laughs> act. As far as that would you'd be out of the running if you weren't pure and wholesome kind of a thing. So uh, funny line, one of the few funny, funny jokes when uh, they're like, okay, well, we need to go over here and get ready. He says, yeah, you have to do an interview. And then he takes the camera and says, I'm going to go shoot the competition. And Blair (laughs) says, yeah, that's the only way we're going to beat them. (laughs) Good joke. Good joke. Good joke, Bendelbaums. Um, (laughs) So just as they're deciding, well, we're going to play the wholesome angle. That's our thing. We're wholesome. You see this group of corn fed girls. They have to be from Iowa or Nebraska. They're sitting at this interview and the girl who does the talking, it's uh, the character is Stacy. It's played by actress named Lee Wilson. She only has four acting credits in the seventies and the eighties, but in the nineties and in uh, getting into 2001, she wrote three TV movies. Oh, the elf who saved Christmas, which was on the USA network. The Elf and the Magic Key, which was, I believe, a sequel, also on the USA Network. And then she wrote a, a movie in 2001 called The Miracle of the Cards, which was on PAX TV, which is now, I guess, Ion TV. That's, I think, a little more religious angle. That's mm-hmm. one of the kid who was dying and said he wanted to break the Guinness World Record of having people send him cards. Okay. And I guess the cards cured him, like inhaling the paper dust was the... unknown cancer. I'm not sure. I didn't get to actually watch the whole thing. I skimmed it. I skimmed it. Uh, So yeah, she actually would go on to be a writer, but she is so magnificent Mm -hmm. as far as, oh, we're just having a wonderful time touring and singing around different places. And we have a newsletter that (laughs) tells our fans what we're up to. We call it what we're up to. (laughs) I love her she is fucking hilarious i got a definite uh mighty wind vibe from her oh my god uh, yes yeah oh totally totally mighty wind vibe um but then while they realize um wh- what is it natalie says she says oh well um wholesome is taken yep. yeah 
<laughs> yep. It's like, okay, well, can't play that fucking angle. And then before they do, before they have a chance to figure out their strategy, overcomes the girls from Detroit come over asking <laughs> if there's a cigarette machine. And Tootie does the fucking thing that you just want to punch somebody for. You shouldn't smoke, bitch. I didn't ask your opinion. I asked you if you saw a fucking smoking machine. It's like at the park. It, where's the smoking area? Oh, you shouldn't smoke. Fuck you. That is not that up was for not discussion the question right now. And like, as someone who smoked for a very long time, like all these people, oh my God, that's so bad for you. Mike, I would always pull the, if I was in the mood, I would always go, the, oh my God, really? I hadn't heard. What? Who said that? <laughs> where where yeah. did you hear that? Is that real? Are you sure? Fuck off. Anyway, <laughs> did you see a fucking, I'm sorry, except like I said, I don't feel good. So I'm not, Tangent, not wow. I'm kind of cranky. But she says, Do you, have you seen a cigarette machine? The answer to the is no. Thank you, Natalie, for just stepping up and going, we didn't see one. That's all yeah. she needed. That's all she needed. Mm-hmm. Now, is there a responsibility on the part of a, a television show with a wide reach? Uh, is there a responsibility to maybe uh, uh, put that point in there for their audience, their younger viewers? In 1985? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that they, if that were the case, I don't think that should have been the line that brings them up to like, maybe where's the restroom? should have been the line then you know what yeah. i mean like, mm-hmm. sure unless broach the subject well unless they thought that tootie says oh you shouldn't do that because it's bad for your voice is what tootie says maybe um, they were like oh this is our perfect chance to to stick it to the smokers without it yeah. being a full-on you shouldn't smoke period <laughs> mm-hmm. i don't know yeah. i think the writers also throw in that uh the fact that they're looking for a cigarette machine it's a quick and dirty way to show something about their character like they're less than savory characters because they smoke i think you're right ryan that it was supposed to quickly telegraph these are the tough chicks and they absolutely are playing it uh the one of the three who does the talking meaning the only one who got paid uh (laughs) she is uh actress and uh songwriter sita garrett s-i-e-d-a-h garrett like mrs garrett uh, here's the thing. She only has a few acting credits, but she's primarily a songwriter. Hmm. In 1987, she sang, I Just Can't Stop Loving You with Michael Jackson on his album, Bad. She sang a duet with him. Uh, she also co-wrote Man in the Mirror. Wow. Which is like, that's the big fucking deal. Uh, she has a Grammy Award and two Oscar nominations. The Oscar nomination is for the song Real in Rio from the animated film Rio. But the other one I'm saving for last is that she got nominated for best song for Love You, I Do from Dreamgirls. Of the new songs added to the film, she co-wrote that one. And I think she does some background music, background singing on it as well. Uh, Yeah. And so she was nominated for that. Unfortunately, she lost to Melissa Etheridge the song I need to wake up from an inconvenient truth. <sighs> Those liberal tree hugging Hollywood types. I'm telling you, but do we, uh, uh, do we think she was uh, associated with DeBarge in some way? Is that how maybe she uh, ended up she in got this episode? This yeah. I think she was just doing the hustle back then. Cause okay. she was, she was like a background singer and stuff for like, she was on, um, 
for Little Shop of Horrors. Like she was a background singer on um, some of the songs for that. And yeah, I think she was just a young girl doing the hustle out there right. in Hollywood mm-hmm. at that time anyway. Yeah. But. And primarily getting the work of being uh, a background vocalist. Tons. If you look on her Wikipedia yeah. page, which I recommend, tons and tons of songs and full albums that she did background vocals on. So yeah. interesting that they didn't. I mean, she is an actress. She does have some acting credits, but they hired a, a woman who does know her way around a recording studio here. Certainly. Nice. Uh, but they try to psych out Tootie and Natalie. They're like, oh. Uh, you don't know where the cigarette machine is? You work here, right? And they're like, no. And Tootie wants to throw down and Natalie is trying to get her to, to just take, the, take the, the classy route, as it were. And then we get their interview with Barry Egan from Teen Scene Magazine. The sixth Beatle. Yes. He, introduces himself. he lists off some somewhat sad music credits. <laughs> And uh, this is actor Murphy Dunn, and I forgot to look him up, or I think I did, but there's nothing. It was literally uh, an entire career of one episode appearances. Yeah. He played Murph in the original Blues Brothers movie and then was brought back as that character in Blues Brothers 2000. But there was something that... um, Oh, it's just his second time or his first time working with the wonderful costume designer, Diana Eden, because he was on an episode of A League of Their Own, the TV series that never made it to, to air. But he reminded me of that typical 1985, like these are the old people that hand kids what music they're going to like. Like, you remember yeah. MTV's Kurt Loder? Oh, yeah. Remember that motherfucker who was like <laughs> 60 in 1985 doing MTV News? He is now 76 years old. He's older than my parents are. <laughs> and he was like the, the cool guy on MTV News in, in 1985. So we got this fucking dude, Barry Egan over here, talking like a fucking... 1960s DJ, which he said he was the most popular DJ in the country or whatever, but he's like full of, you know, and coming from the West Coast to the, and they're the most coming from the West Coast with the, I don't know, I can't do it, but (laughs) doing this corny Collins shit. Yeah, yeah, bullshit. So anyways, this fucking old dude, he's he's got his finger on the pulse of the fucking hit music scene. He's the same guy who wrote those computer jokes in the uh, act one. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So the next scene is a perfect example of that because it begins with him making the next cut, as it were. And the first thing he says is, you know, you are all wonderful. And I mean that from the bottom of my pumper. Yeah. Um, oh, OK. I That's the thing people say. Yeah, <laughs> I, I hope I I hope you mean your heart. But uh, anyhow, he announces that there are three finalists. Now, so of all the others that were there, there are now three finalists, and he announces the names of the groups. And the first one, talk about your middle-aged vaudevillian writers saying, what are some weird names that a rock group could have, you know? So the first group is Cardiac Arrest. (laughs) And this group of girls that we haven't seen or heard from off in the corner, jump up and down. Yeah, scream! And then the next one is Commotion. Those are the girls from Detroit. They jump up and down. Yeah! And third, sexy lingerie. And Andy starts jumping up and down and screaming like a maniac. 
And I'm sorry, it is funny and the reactions of everybody, the cutaways and the reactions <laughs> to what is happening right now. And the girls go, Andy, what he we lost. Why are you cheering? And he was like, No, you are sexy lingerie. That's what I named you. <laughs> Which is horny child moment number six, ladies and gentlemen. But number not, six. Not one time did anybody say, What what what's the name of our group? <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. Nobody bothered to ask until that point. Nobody. In the interview, he didn't say, so sexy lingerie, let me ask you this. No, <laughs> never came about. They didn't see the, the letter wasn't addressed to that. The letter that Tootie wrote didn't have that on there. It's absolutely preposterous. But th the reactions to Andy cheering and then when he reveals that their name is sexy lingerie, <laughs> the reaction shots to that and they're like, wait, what? And he says, that's what I named you. And Tootie's reaction, I'm sorry, comedy gold, where Tootie just says, <laughs> oh, say you didn't. <laughs> and of course, who is the biggest dissenting voice? Joe, I'm not going to be known as sexy lingerie. Uh, hey, why weren't we called the sweaty jock straps or something? <laughs> Anyhow. Then George is like, you know, something about it appeals to me. Well, yeah, because you're a horny 24-year-old. You're damn right. Um, so Rhonda says, uh, we're going to blow you away. The competition is on now. Stacy, our little corn-fed Iowa girl, wherever the fuck they're from, she comes over and congratulates them wholeheartedly, congratulates them. And they're like, well, we're sorry, didn't go well for you. Oh, no, we've gotten to meet so many people that are going to be friends forever. And George says, yeah, you know, I think you still might need some comforting. Let me walk with you. So George escorts her out of the room, trying to make a play for the, the Amish girl, basically. I, I like that he's willing to take that chance. He's willing to. Sees yep. an opportunity, doesn't want yep. to let it go to waste. Why not? And he does later, we learn, strike out. So mm -hmm. this is not the first time, Ryan, we've had, uh, we don't see the scene, but we know that it happens where some chick somewhere is like, no, go get, I'm not going to fuck you, George Clooney, go away. <laughs> yeah. And they therein, will regret it for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Therein lies the flaw in the character writing. Like we have to pretend that George Clooney can't get his dick sucked in peak skill. <laughs> So the girls go in. Is this when the girls go in to record or whatever? Because my favorite line in the whole series. David, I know. I know this is coming. coming. I remember this. So I did want to properly set this up for you. So we're at the point where the three remaining groups now, the final finalists, have to actually record themselves singing. They have to go into the studio and record. And then when L. DeBarge arrives, he will listen and make his decision as to who the winner is. So then change of time, little spinny of the image of the frame of the picture. And we're now later on and they apparently have already done this. So they have now sung, they're sitting around. They don't look too happy. George says, it was okay. Your rhythm was a little off. And Joe says, nah, we were terrible. And Blair says, well, they have filters. And Natalie says, can they filter out Tootie burping through the whole song? Girl drinks a root beer right before we go on. <laughs> <laughs> and that, the... 
has to go on record, Matthew, as as this is your favorite line of the entire series. Really? Right next to later on when Blair gets murdered and says "dippity do," it's a, it's another. <laughs> it's right up there with one of my favorite. Yeah, that and um, I want to be blue. And they're playing a board game, and Natalie is. I want to be blue. I want to be blue. Yep. Um. So yeah, girl drinks are, just the delivery, Natalie. I just fucking love Mindy Cohn. Girl drinks a root beer right before we go on. <laughs> oh god, it's just uh, it makes me laugh every time. I love. And it. they would be belching while they're recording. It was like you couldn't do another take. What the fuck, man? That's so. Rich. It's like time is money. Yeah, <sighs> time is money. And then there was Joe Fawton over there. Jesus. <laughs> Silent but deadly. Um, so uh, yeah, so they're they're not feeling too good about this. No. So out comes our sixty-year-old uh, Dick Clark wannabe, who has an announcement: cardiac arrest has broken up due to artistic differences. So now our finalists are down to two: sexy lingerie and commotion. And then the moment of truth. Natalie is bent over getting a drink of water from the water cooler. The elevator door opens up and ladies and gentlemen, L. DeBarge enters the room. Bumping into Natalie at the water cooler uh, to make a little funny, wacky physical moment. Uh, how would you describe? Could, could, I don't know if this is possible, Ryan. Can you describe how he is dressed and what he looks like? Uh, Clearly, uh, Eric LaSalle's character in uh, Coming to America oh. is uh, inspired by this look of uh, El DeBarge. Oh, I never thought of that. Just without, yeah. not the Jerry curl, though. This is, yeah. he's got a big puffed up Felicia Rashad thing going on here. Yes, significantly more hair. But, but it feels very much like that, uh, like the Eric LaSalle character. This is like a patchwork shiny jacket. And yeah, he has like some type of a scarf going on the big poofed up, not just the mullet, but the mullet with volume, like yeah. football helmet hair. Um, I thought I thought he was dressed as a reference to the a callback to the penthouse joke, because I thought he looked just like Vanessa Williams. <laughs> <laughs> Clothes and hair and everything. If it was from the back, I would have been like, hey, Vanessa. And he would have turned around and this voice would have come out. And I would have been like. Vanessa. Vanessa and then I would have realized that he had a mustache a little mustache a, that was like that creepy weird like 17 year old like yeah. mustache like mm-hmm. oh, yeah oh, gross but then we get to experience David the acting chops <laughs> of a singer that is cast on a TV show that has no acting chops do you feel like I, this is one of those scenes where I feel like we've seen this before where the scene feels like that 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 person thrust into the situation had double the amount of lines originally. And then day of filming, they're like, you know, let's just let's cut yeah. <laughs> half of that out and just keep it real simple. I swear we speculated that with the Jermaine Jackson episode, didn't we, Matthew? Yeah, that we I were like so. the, the same thing. It was just like, oh, yeah, oh, didn't, didn't yeah. I see you uh, in in Detroit, yeah, you were playing at the dark cellar, something, huh? Uh, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, it's that 
very timid. And if you look at um, the video, because his biggest hit was Rhythm of the Night, which was actually recorded by DeBarge, which is the Jackson 5 to Eldebarge, which would be, I guess, Tito, Jermaine, J- Jimmy. So it his was- First name is L. I, his first name is Elda or something like that. Eldin okay. or Elda. Elden. Yeah. L is right. uh, his first a nickname of his actual first name. Correct. Okay. The, yeah. de, right. the DeBarge family. It was like a dynasty, if you will. Um, <laughs> a dynasty. And, and it's like, I equivocate it now to like what, like I did a gig with the Temptations, mm-hmm. which is now none of the originals, but the third cousin of the fourth, guy who was from the left is now one of the temptations and they tour as the temptations now it's like that like they're trying to keep this fucking family like it's a whole family of people with the last name debarge and Mm -hmm. they're just (laughs) plugging them in like menudo almost like just (laughs) like okay you're too old get out okay now we've got we got cousin debarge over here this is mini debarge we've got boat debarge we've got um (laughs) boat dolly debarge we've got dolly debarge (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've got trash to barge over here and scrappy to barge. Yeah. <laughs> but the, he is 24 years old here, by the way, that would explain the, the porn stash that would explain why mm-hmm. I think, and similar to, if you look at the video of rhythm of the night, there is so much, this could be the next Jackson's. This is the next Jackson five. He could be the next Michael. There is so much of that about this video, right? In the way that he dances and the way that he moves and in the in the way that his voice is so high pitched and he's known for the tenor, the hidden and the rhythm of the night. He sings up there. That's his natural voice range. So there's a lot of this being like your bargain basement, no name brand Jacksons who happened to have one big hit and a few other smaller ones. Now, he would go on to collaborate and co-write with other stars like Dionne Warwick and Babyface and Quincy Jones and all that. So um, and he's a five time Grammy Award nominee, by the by. We're we're being dismissive of him now here as a one hit wonder. But I mean, he did have some some cred at that point. And uh, yeah, He he is a working professional, a working professional respect and. uh so Rhonda tries to flirt with him. And yeah, that's when we get the wonderful acting chops of him recognizing her from a certain uh, club or something in Detroit, which tracks he is from Detroit, mm-hmm. by the way. At which point she's like, oh, uh, yeah, maybe. And then uh, uh, Barry. Barry, Barry is like, wait, 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 whoa. Did you get paid to perform? Have you ever been paid to perform? This contest is strictly for amateurs only. So very quickly, it's like, guess what? Commotion, you are out. And winners by default, sexy lingerie. So they didn't win on the merits of their own ability. No. Um, yeah, I don't think they could have, honestly. Mm-mm. But as he passes Andy, and Andy is wearing a suit, by the way, a striped suit that doesn't look dissimilar to Joe's stand-up comedy suit, her man suit <laughs> that we sometimes see her in. Uh, and he does say, I like your style, kid. And Andy's all, <laughs> he says, he likes my style. <laughs> so that's kind of the wrapping up of Andy's storyline is that he got the compliment that he wanted because with the girls winning the contest, 
our episode is over. All we have left to do is to go into the studio and we get to see them all lip syncing the hit song, You Wear It Well, which was released in October of 1985. This is synergy, guys, that they coordinated this episode to coincide with the release of this song. And uh, he he lip syncs his own voice pretty well, though he doesn't look particularly comfortable in front of the camera and the audience. He's just kind of there trying to trying to sell a little bit, trying to give us a little bit of eyes and looks to the girls. The girls. I just especially enjoyed Joe in the background improvising the woo <laughs> into it. And if, again, we've all been in music recording studios where somebody improvised like that and everybody's like, yeah, leave that in. Yeah. We didn't bring the thing to a screeching halt and be like, um, where do you see on this fucking music a woo, Joe? <laughs> take it but, back. But take, take it back to one. Back to one. <laughs> but for how he is, uh, he is not overplaying and overselling. He's he's definitely not. He's doing appropriate music video level. Little dead, little dead behind the eyes. Not going to lie. Yeah, but he's he's, he's made music videos at this point. So, yeah. Oh, totally. And uh, but when we cut to the girls talk about overselling the shit out of it. Oh, my God. They are, as, as Matthew has said, they are playing to the balcony in the theater next door. <laughs> for how they are selling that. Yeah, we're singing. Yeah, these professionally recorded and mixed voices that we're lip syncing to is totally us singing live with all the leaning in and the moving and the gestures and the pointing of the fingers and do I, yeah. And like, oh my God, (laughs) it is so uncomfortable. And then for the final moment, because we don't get all the way through the song. Thankfully, they know we didn't need to hear the whole damn song. He pull. He grabs Natalie, I guess, who's on the end, and pulls her over to his microphone. Because you know, when your backup singers who yeah. are never in the same room as the lead singer, by the way, you never have two microphones in the same room when it comes to the vocal tracks, for fuck's sake. But he pulls them, <laughs> Natalie, over in sort of chain reaction. They all end up awkwardly huddled behind his microphone. And then I think George and Andy even jump in. And then isn't it Barry who takes the camera and snaps this picture of this awkwardly positioned and not very visually appealing at all. Final tableau, El DeBarge and the cast of the Facts of Life. This happened. Click. (sighs) And again, why is George in that recording studio? Why is he even with them in the building? But then how did he get in this recording studio as well? How did, how did any of them get into that recording yeah. studio, Ryan? Really? Let's yeah. be real. How did Andy get it? It just doesn't make any sense. What, what so, did you think, Ryan? Did this get you back into the Facts oh, of Life universe? The fault yeah. you? Uh, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> in my in my head the facts of life is about the uh those kids at the school so uh this is you know uh deep into the realm of the they have moved on past that at all and this is them out in the real world except it's ridiculous and it, it is all the tropes of 80 sitcoms that i i do not enjoy the, the trope that we haven't actually cited is the awful trope of 
we're just everyday people living our lives on the show, but we're going to somehow cross paths with a famous person. Yeah. And suddenly the entire everything is all about that. And and even worse, things like, you know, oh, and he's a singer and we're going to sing with him. Like, remember when Stevie Wonder was on the Cosby show? And somehow Cosby arranged for Stevie Wonder to meet his family. And it's like, oh, flip the tape on. Let's sing a duet with Felicia Rashad of I just called to say I love you because <laughs> this this lawyer bitch clearly is a professional singer. It, it, uh, it harkens I, back to the Lucy shows where Jack Benny and Ethel Merman mm-hmm. and, and, you know, Harpo Marx somehow happened to pop into Lucy's little house in suburban Connecticut. Yeah. And it's not just that like random happenstance gets them to those situations. It's the characters keep failing up into succeeding. They oh, keep they keep beautiful. Yeah. They don't uh like they the girls didn't win the contest. The they didn't they didn't do that first entry. Andy did it for them. Uh the uh I guess they did make a recording that they that got him to the next round, but we never saw that happen. Um, uh, and then the only reason they make it to the f- the the they win is they somehow get to the final three, and two of the other the other two groups are eliminated on their own problems. It's got nothing to do with them. Uh, Ryan, I I think the term "failing up." <laughs> is the perfect descriptor of this episode and possibly the entire rest of the run of this sitcom. Mm. Just going to say it. I don't, I don't think that's a me original. I've, I've heard that phrase used elsewhere. Yeah. So I don't think that I, I have too, but I've never, yeah, yeah, I've never heard that. I've never heard that applied to this. We've never used the term on the podcast. So I love it. Good. Good. I love it. I love it. I love it. So around this time we were watching facts of life. What was Ryan watching? What was your favorite show? Ah, 1985. What else is on? Uh, is Airwolf happening right now? I believe it is. I think I'm an Airwolf fan. I'm, I'm definitely an Airwolf fan from from those era, that era. Now, keep in mind that I have not watched that show since it aired. So I might <laughs> be horrified at how terrible it actually is. Um, Airwolf ran 84 to 87. So this great. is right in the sweet spot. Yes. Mm-hmm. I've never That's seen an episode. Ernest Borgnine and uh, that other guy <sighs> who really had some problems later in his career. The character is Jan Spring- Michael Vincent. Yes, Jan Michael Vincent. Thank you. Yeah. Oh. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for making the time to do this. Thank you for bringing your equipment to sleuths. Thank you for having me. This is uh, super fun. I, I love uh, dissecting things like this, even though it's not something that I was. Uh, a huge fan of and it's in its time I, I was aware of it and watched it but like looking back on it now with the you know the lens of experience is uh fascinating well i love that we're slowly getting back to some semblance of reality where uh more and more i'm saying to my guests i look forward to when we're going to be on stage again because yes. that's happening we've already yep. been doing that that's so exciting yep So until then, and until we have you back on the show, thank you, smooches, and goodbye. Thank you. And there you have it. That was Ryan Gelodi. Failing up. What a beautiful phrase. I think it's going to be used a lot 
in future episodes. Let's see if I'm right. But I I think I have fallen in love with that phrase, and I think it's going to apply to a lot of things that are coming down the pike. Um, the only other point that I didn't get to make was earlier in the podcast, I needed to look ahead to this episode. I forget what for, but I zipped ahead, pulled up the episode, and just went straight to the scene in the recording studio. And my first thought with the 80s-tastic patchwork quilt jacket and the big teased-up Felicia Rashad hair and the thin stash, and the, my immediate first thought was, this is a weigh-ins brother. This is a, a joke character, a, a spoof of a pop star from In Living Color. Like, okay, is that Sean or, or is that Marlon? It's, it's one of those two. Not Keenan, but it's one of the others, one of the younger brothers. <laughs> it, it, it's just, oh my goodness, so freaking hilarious to look back at all of this. And um, that's why I love doing this show. And that's why I love that you guys keep downloading and listening to it. I, I hope you're enjoying it as much as I still am. Even after all this time, two and a half years, guys, it's crazy. It's been going on this long. Anyway, next week, I'm going to be watching season seven, episode eight, Come Back to the Truck Stop, Natalie Green, Natalie Green. <sighs> I'm already predisposed to dislike it based on the title alone. But let's save our judgment, shall we? You can watch the episode for free at dailymotion.com. I will post the link in this week's show notes and on this episode's webpage. That is all for now. Thank you so much for listening to this week's show. And remember, the facts of life are all about you. Let's Face the Facts was created, produced, written, hosted, and edited by the wonderful David Almeida. Our theme song was beautifully arranged and recorded by Ned Wilkinson. Please visit facethefactspod.com for supplemental photos and videos, links to social media, and ways that you can support the show. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. This is Matthew Arder saying tune in again next week for another thrilling episode of Let's Face the Facts. <laughs>